Well, welcome, 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 welcome to VRL. Whether you're here at Barker, you're joining us at Otis, or for the first time ever, you're joining us at Freeman, welcome. We're so glad that you decided to join us. My name is Tyler Lane. I'm the high school pastor here at Valley Real Life. I've got three kids, uh, the oldest of which is a daughter who's five, and she has a favorite question. It's a question that drives me bonkers. The question is, why? Right? It's the question of why. why. She asks why after everything. She doesn't want to do anything unless you tell her the reason why. It doesn't matter if it's me telling her to take her plate, uh, empty plate to the kitchen or to pick up her toys or to get off her brother. Like it doesn't matter what it is. She's like, why do I have to do that? And sometimes I don't feel like I have to explain it. And one reason is because it's so complex that I can't break it down to a five-year-old, right? So we have a seven-month-old uh, daughter, um, who has, which has prompted a lot of questions from, from Nora uh, about where babies come from, right? And I don't, I don't want to answer that to a, at a five-year-old level, so um, I just say, go talk to your mom. But other times, the, the answer is so simple, I feel like I shouldn't have to explain it right? That I don't feel like I should have to tell you why you need to get off your brother uh, in order for you to listen, right? And we have these moments, and I simply respond with, because I said so. (laughs) The problem is sometimes, almost all the time, that frustrates my daughter to no end. She wants to know why. She wants to know why. Before she's going to commit to doing it, she wants to know why. And I feel like the same is true for us. Oh, maybe just for me. I have a, a small, I'm working on it, but a small authority problem. And you can blame my generation, that's fine, but I am trying to get better at it. And if you tell me why, if you could tell me the heart of what we're doing, instead of just telling me what to do, I am more likely to jump on board. And not begrudgingly, like, fine, I'll do it because you're my boss, but I'll jump all in. Like, let's do this. Let's champion this and let's go. And that's the idea behind this sermon series that we're in over the next few weeks. That sometimes we are told a lot of things we need to do. As followers of Jesus, there are a lot of things to do. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's over 630 commands or laws or things to do. But like my five-year-old, we oftentimes will ask, why? Like, why am I doing this? Why do I have to do this? And there's this sermon that Jesus gives that helps us answer so many of those why. See, this sermon is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's the most famous and complete sermon of Jesus' that we have. It's found in Matthew 5 through 7. And last week, Dan kicked us off in this series. And he began our look at the Sermon on the Mount, not at the beginning, actually at the end. You see, in this series where we're talking about the why behind the what, Dan started his message with why even have the sermon about the why behind the what? And we looked at the end about if we're going to build, the, the, the reason we want to do all of these things and follow Jesus is we want to build our life on solid ground. And then he went back to the beginning in a section of scripture that's commonly referred to as the Beatitudes that help us determine the characteristics that define all Christians, or at least should define all Christians. 
And that's where we're going to pick up today, where he ends the Beatitudes and begins the rest of his sermon. That's where we'll dive in today. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Uh, if you uh, have your Bible, you can turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We would love to give to you. Or you can pull out your phone and follow along on the Bible app. Or if you're like me and you can't focus long enough to not check scores, it'll be on the screen for you as well. But I think I've given you enough time to get there. And so let's jump in to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Jesus says to the people who have gathered to listen to him, You are the salt of the earth. But what good is it is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. See, there's a lot to unpack, even in four verses. There's a lot there. And so I want to frame our conversation this morning around this thought, that this kingdom that God is building is different and distinct from anything else in the world. And Jesus uses these two metaphors, the metaphors of salt and light, to indicate the influence for good which Christians will exert in the community if and only if they maintain their distinctive character as portrayed in the Beatitudes, which as I just mentioned, Dan spoke on last week. And I'd encourage you, if you weren't here last weekend, uh, to go back and listen to that, that message that really sets the tone for where we're going to spend the next several weeks in. And so he likens us to salt and light. And in a series that we're talking about, the why behind the what, the first question I ask is, why salt and light? Out of all the illustrations he could have used, why salt and light? Jesus has this knack in all of his teaching to pull from common everyday items, people that everybody would have, that everybody could see, and then he attaches his heavenly meaning to them to allow a complicated idea to become a simple idea. And the same is true here. You see, no, every single home, no matter how wealthy or poor, used and still uses both salt and light. And some houses manufacture their light. And some houses in some parts of the world solely re rely on natural light. But every home used and still uses salt and light. In fact, uh, there's a Roman philosopher, his name was Pliny, and he once said that there is nothing more useful than salt and sunshine. You see, the need for light is obvious. Salt, on the other hand, has a variety of uses. It's a condiment, it's preservative. Uh, one person even told me after Thursday night service that, uh, that it can be used even to help heal wounds and heal uh, different things. Uh, it's also a preservative, seasoning, all these different things. But why would Jesus then, like we understand that these are useful and he, like everybody would would see them and know them, but why does he put them together? The basic truth which relies behind these metaphors, and it's common to both, is, that, is, is this, that the, both the church and the world are distinct communities, different from each other, and salt and light have distinct roles to play in their specific purposes and so do we as followers of Jesus. And so I wanna dive a little bit deeper into each of these images 
starting with salt. As we mentioned, it has several different uses. My favorite use of salt is that it makes things taste better, right? That just a little bit of salt can make, you know, a a dish taste a lot better. But in Jesus's day, the most important uh, use of salt, the days before refrigeration, was that salt helped food last longer. Or another way to say it is that salt prevents decay. Salt prevents decay. You know, what's interesting is we live in a world that has a constant tendency to deteriorate, to decay. In fact, it can't stop itself from going bad. This steak, if left out long enough, is not going to be fit to eat. In fact, after uh, three services so far, it probably isn't. Yeah, I wouldn't eat that. So, but like we, we know this to be true about food. If we leave it out long enough, it's going to go bad. And we don't blame the steak for going bad. We blame the person who left it out, right? And we don't, we know that the world is getting worse. It's deteriorating, it's decaying. See, if this steak was left alone, like it has been all morning, you're not gonna wanna eat it. A few weeks ago, uh, my, uh, my wife and I were grilling some steaks and, uh, and I wanted to get better at making the steaks the best they possibly could. So I texted my friend Drew, who's on staff here, and he's from Texas. And uh, so that was all the information I needed to know that he knew how to grill steaks, right? And so I texted him and I'm expecting that I'm gonna get from him uh, just a few little tips like here, you know, heat it to this much, it'll be fine, you know, blah, blah, blah. And within like five minutes, Drew sent me the longest text I've ever received in my life. <laughs> and it was like, I honestly, I was like, did you just copy and paste that or did you type this right now? He's like, oh, I just typed it up. And I'm like, this is like, you know, seventh grade girl level typing right now because it was so quick and so detailed. And he, he sent this to me and it was, it was, crazy detail. But an interesting part of it was he, he got to this point, he's like, hey, about an hour and a half, an hour before you're going to grill your steaks, pull them out of the fridge and put them on the table and leave them out there, rub some salt on them. He goes, it feels weird because you think that it's going to, uh, they're going to not be good and there's going to be all this bacteria, but trust me, I can tell you the science, but just trust me, they'll be all right. Well, and they, they'll be all right because they have this salt on them that, that's helping Uh, not only just bring out the flavors, but preventing the decay that naturally would be going on. See, like the meat left alone, our world is naturally deteriorating. It doesn't take long watching the news to recognize that things are not getting better. But the God that we serve, the God that I serve, is not one to sit idly by. Instead, he sends his chosen people, his church, to take a stand against what is wrong and prevent this decay. And if we're gonna follow Jesus, it means we are firm on preventing this decay. In the rest of his sermon, Jesus is gonna give a bunch of things to do to prevent the decay. Like, what does this look like? But before he tells us what to do, he tells us why we do it. Why do we take a stand? Why do we care about the world does Because God loves the world and he has called us to be his very extension into it. And Jesus adds this qualifier about salt. That if we're going to be salt, we need to remain salty. Not like in the Gen Z way of remaining salty. What he means is we need to not be distracted from our purpose. 
uh, I dove deeper into the, just the chemistry behind salt. That uh, it's interesting that chemists would say that sodium chloride is one of the strongest bonds that we have in our entire universe. That once it comes, uh, becomes combined, it's almost impossible to separate it. And rarely in nature do you ever see it come untied. But what chemists, what chemists have found out is that instead of trying to separate it, if you just throw a bunch of other stuff around it, it loses its saltiness. It starts to blend in with what's around it. And that you don't need to separate salt to get it to be less salty. You just need to distract it from its purpose. See, it reminds me of this story I had with a high school girl just this last week. And she was talking to me about how difficult it is for her to come to church and to study God's word and to try and to love Jesus and to care about that and then to walk into her high school, her public high school, every single week and stay as strong there. To stay and stand out that even her friends that profess to love Jesus, that they're all struggling with just like trying to blend in. And I remember myself even in high school and I tricked myself into thinking that actually if I was too different, if I was too set apart, that I would be less effective because nobody would want to listen to my message. And so it was easier for me to blend in and I thought that I was being effective, but one scholar would tell us this, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. You see, have you ever tried to just eat salt? Just like throw it back? It's disgusting. It's disgusting, it doesn't matter if it's kosher salt, if it's sea salt, it doesn't matter, it's gross. But this steak that I made the other day with the help of Drew was one of the best steaks that I've ever had. Certainly the best steak that I've ever made. And the only seasoning was salt. You see, salt on its own, useless. But salt, when used for its intended purpose, brings out the best in what it's influencing. See, we weren't called to blend in, but instead to stand up and to stand out. But standing up and being the salt doesn't always mean protesting. And I think it rarely means sharing that image you just saw on Facebook. Instead, it means sticking to your values even when no one else does. Uh, being the salt, it means holding firm to a faith that may put you on the outside at times. But it also means not withdrawing from the world altogether. That if, if being in the world is going to dilute my saltiness, then I'm just going to withdraw. Sometimes that's our mindset. And Jesus is saying this sermon on this hilltop. And just a few miles away is the salt sea, or we refer to it as the dead sea. And there's this community that lived near the salt sea called the Essenes. And the Essenes were notorious about following every single one of God's law to a T. They were so good about it. They knew so much about God. They knew more about God than all of us in this room combined. Like, it wasn't even close. But they had forgotten something. They had forgotten that salt in its can is useless. 
they had completely withdrawn from the world. And they just said, like, if our religion is going to stay pure, then we're only going to interact with each other who love and know God. And we're not going to get distracted by anything else. But salt isn't useful in the can. And Jesus says that when we, when we are the salt of the earth, we join the kingdom to prevent the decay in the world around us. And honestly, like Jesus could have stopped us there. That's enough for us to handle sometimes. But it kind of would have been like a negative way to end. Like, okay, I'm just going to prevent the decay. I'm going to prevent the decay. Stop doing bad things. But Jesus didn't stop there. He's just getting started. Because he knows that the world is a dark place with little or no light of its own and that an external light source is going to be needed. So he likens us to light. And listen, I don't have to explain the value of light to you. You get it. Without light, we can do very little, whether it's natural light or created. In fact, I believe it would be really tough for you to even listen or focus on me if there were no lights in this room. See, light has one very simple purpose. Light illuminates the darkness. Light illuminates the darkness. But this isn't the only time that Jesus talks about light. In fact, in John 8, he's going to say, I am the light of the world. You see, in our text, he says, you are the light of the world. But here, John, he says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. And what Jesus knows in John 8 and what Jesus knows here in Matthew 5 is that he's not going to be on the earth forever. That someday he's going to walk into Jerusalem and he's going to be betrayed by one of his best friends. He's going to be handed over to uh, the, the leaders and the authorities and they're going to crucify him, not for anything he's done, but because they want to kill him. He's going to hang on a cross and then somebody's going to donate a tomb so he can be buried with honor. He's put there for three days, but a grave couldn't hold him. And so he comes out and he rises from the dead and he walks around the earth, commissioning his people, his church, read us, to now go and take this light that you have seen in him and be that everywhere that you go. And there are times in our life when I read Jesus and I read it and I'm like, Nope, don't understand that. And sometimes he says things that are weird and it's hard. And then I'm encouraged because you keep reading. And whoever's writing that gospel really sells the disciples out. And they're like, well, the disciples are dumb and they didn't understand what Jesus said either. And I feel better because I, like, I didn't understand it. And so Jesus has to explain it at a five-year-old level and, and it's fine. But here... He explains it from the beginning. He's like, I don't want you to miss what I mean by you are the light of the world. He tells us that our good deeds are our light. And by good deeds, he's not just meaning when we proclaim the truth of God, which certainly he means that. But also these works of love expressing not only our loyalty to God, but our care for others as well. And Jesus knows that when people see, our, see us standing in our faith, and loving the people around us, they will glorify God. And that last phrase, that's the crucial part. That they would glorify God answers the why about light. You see, we shine God's light for God's glory, not for us. Which is weird, 
Because later in the same sermon, Jesus is going to say, when you are doing your good deeds, don't let anybody see it. And that seems like a contradiction. And it's like, what do you want from me, Jesus? You told me to go and let everybody see that I'd be a light that's not hidden. And then here you're saying, don't even let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. What, what do you want? But his next phrase helps us understand because he says, don't do our good deeds publicly to be admired by others. The difference is the heart. And I think it's why in Galatians, Paul will say, as for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the good deeds, when we shine our light, these good deeds, they don't mean much if the why is missing. You see, that's just empty religion or at the very best, philanthropy. But God is not in the business of philanthropy. He's in the business of changing eternities. And when we do these good deeds and we help others in needs and we share the truth of God and we train the younger generations with the love of God and the motivation to bring him glory, that's when we are being the light of God. Because what happens there, the difference is that people see that light and they are thankful for the light, not the lamp. And sometimes we do these, we do these good deeds because we think, look how great this lamp is. But a lamp that's not turned on, not super useful. And you can have all the right stuff, and yet if your light is not shining, man, what a waste of a lamp. And like with salt, Jesus offered a warning for his followers. He says, no one turns on a light and then covers it. Why not? Because it's not effective. For instance, this light has been on the entire time. But you didn't know it because it was covered. It's not useful if it's covered. See, sometimes that's us. And sometimes that's me. Uh, sometimes I get an opportunity to travel and I love, I love getting to travel. I especially love traveling by plane. And I really like when I get to fly without kids. Like it's just, it's a whole nother level of just greatness, right? And I know that sometimes I will sit next to a person that I don't know and we'll strike up a conversation and we'll talk about that. And there have been times in my life where I've said, like, I've just like tried to steer that conversation away from what I do for a living. And not because I'm ashamed about what I do. I love what I get to do. But I know that in a conversation with a stranger, it's going to change the conversation immediately. But if I'm honest, when I do that, it's me doing this. And what God could use as an opportunity, I've swept under the seat next to the flotation device. You see, the short of it is that any community or follower of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. But, but when we let our light shine, like when we go under a bridge to feed the homeless, or when we pack boxes for, for needy families, even in our own backyard. Heck, even when we attach a silly card to a full-size candy bar and we hand it out on a night that our religion can't figure out if it's good or not, but we do it with a, a smile. Or maybe that night instead you fill up your, your trunk with candy and you provide a safe place for a kid to come 
have a blast and you do it in a way that glorifies God, see, that's what it means to shine a light. My brother attends a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and his pastor regularly says that when we shine the light of God, we don't just represent God, instead we represent God to a people who are in desperate need of him. And being the salt is important, necessary, but it's one thing to spread, uh, to stop the spread of decay and evil. It's entirely a different thing to spread and help spread good beauty and goodness. See, that's what we do when we shine God's light for all to see. And after spending these moments talking about light and salt and telling us why we are that, Jesus is gonna spend the rest of his sermon on the mount telling us what to do. And it, but every single one of those what's is gonna call back to the why of salt and lie. Let me give you a couple examples. Our next verse, verse 17 says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purposes, purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All that to say this, the what here is obedience to the law. But if obe obeying the law is the goal, and Jesus says we're no better than the Pharisees, who we learn from Jesus are empty and just trying to earn their way into heaven. Because Jesus isn't as concerned with crossing all the T's with the law. He wants us to make sure that our heart is in the right place. You see, why do we obey the law? Why do we obey the things that God has told us to do? Because when we do, our salt is saltier and our light shines brighter. Or take this example. In the next verse, verse 21, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, and in this sermon, he's gonna say this several times. You have heard, but I say, and what he's doing is, listen, you have heard the what, but can I explain to you the why? That the issue never was murder. The issue he's gonna tell you is angry, anger because I say even if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in, the danger, in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on the way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid every last penny. And it sounds more like a direct TV commercial because you have cable. <laughs> And you're stuck in prison in the midst of this. But the what here is anger. See, he quotes the law proving that we hear the what and we attach to the what 
and we stay close to the what, but he wants to talk about why the law even exists. Again, it's about the heart. See, when we're controlled by our anger, we can't be salt and we can't shine light. And we live in an angry culture, don't we? Like it's a culture that wants to get angry and we're always angry about something. I can't really stay on top of what I'm supposed to be angry about this week, right? But how countercultural would it be if, if we apologized when we make a mistake? Because salt and light is distinct. It's not like the culture. It's distinct from it. Or, or, or what if we approach someone face to face when we have an issue with them? And not in anger, but in humility. Our flesh and our culture say that you should get revenge and you would be justified. But when you handle your anger with humility and seek reconciliation, God gets the glory and the gospel is ever more attractive. See, when we approach law and anger with both salt and light, we prove our distinction from this world and we remain effective for God's glory. So as we close, one question for you. Where can you be salt and light this week? That is to say, where can you be distinct in your life to bring glory to God? Because choosing to be salt and light, it's not always easy. People won't always appreciate it. In fact, I think it's more of a discipline that we train to become saltier and to become brighter. But it becomes so much easier when we understand the why behind the what. See, God is building this kingdom that's different and distinct than anything else. And he gets the glory, he gets the most glory when we are the most like him. And our families become healthier because these acts of salt holding firm to our values, knowing and living the truth, that these acts, they prevent the decay that we see so often in our world. And our schools and our workplaces become brighter because these acts of light, like helping your coworker, even when it doesn't benefit you at all, or sitting by that kid at lunch, or loving and the hurting, not just protesting the broken system, no, these, these acts of light, they illuminate the darkness and they help it to look more like God intended. So I ask again, where can you be salt and light this week? Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, you are so good. Lord, thank you for, for calling us to be different. Lord, remind us as we go home today, as we go in back into work, as we go back to school, wherever, wherever life takes us, Lord, would you challenge us to be your salt and light? Would you show us the examples of where we can stand firm and prevent the decay? Lord, would you, would you give us opportunities to shine bright your light, not even our light, Lord? so that you get the glory. And Lord, would you help each of us to have that heart that seeks to glorify you and to advance your kingdom. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.